everyone welcome to manufacturing hub my name is dave this guy up here is vlad we are super excited to conclude uh this part of the itot convergence theme uh, uh and again we want to thank siemens uh for sponsoring that and we want to welcome our very special guest Bernd reithel burn welcome to the show thank you for being here thank you dave thank you a lot uh, great to be here Thanks Thank you so much for, for joining us today, Bernd. As we continue the conversation about ITOT convergence, I think it's great to have you on the show. Uh, again, thank you for your time. Before we dive into the topic, could you give us a little bit of a background? How did you get started in the manufacturing automation industry? What took you to where you are today? And ultimately, give us a little bit more information on what it is that you do today. All right. All um... right. So I started uh, quite a few years ago. Um, I studied micromechanical engineering, um, combination mechanical engineering, computer science, electrical engineering. And that at first I really went into coding and uh, I created um, software for real-time systems, real-time communication, real-time control systems. And I also started at the same time at a, in a small company. You do many things at the same time and many jobs at the same time also started to go into a programming line control system for assembly um, <clears throat> for assembly lines um, basically the overall line control to do that and then um, really got to, to know both sides on one side the R&D side how, how is basically a development process working how is a product lifecycle process working but at the same time also what's happening in automation so what, what does it take to get a plant running 24-7, to get a machine running 24-7, and with all the challenges you have to deal and everything around that. Um, good thing about a small company was also weren't a ton of people, so you were responsible for everything you wanted to do, and at the same time you could learn everything you were interested in. So that also opened up a lot of opportunities from that side. Um, I was We were also building our own machines after a while, I was one of his emotion pilot customers for storage systems and basically building our own machines with all the challenges that come along with it, basically installing the machine, getting all the stuff done and everything, making sure it's profitable at the end of the day for the company. Um, and then after nine years, um, at that time, the company really grew from 13 people to, to around 70 people. After nine years, I said, okay, let's, let's go somewhere else and see something different. Um, and, and, and I went to Siemens, I joined Siemens. Mm -hmm. um, product manager for control systems uh, at, at that time, a small area control systems used in uh, steel mills and then also H power transmission um, plants. And then in 2008, uh, I became responsible for uh, basically creating the 7500 at the time. So basically, I was in product management. I was responsible for defining the features. Uh, what do we have in a 7300, 400? What do we need in a 7500? What new features are required for the market and really build on it and, and, and create the next generation of, of Siemens automation platform? Um, I did it for five years until till the launch. And afterwards, I, I moved on to industrial PCs. Um, and. Uh, was responsible for industrial PCs within Siemens and product management on a global basis to take care of them. And also a super exciting time other than 2013 and 15. Um, we had IPCs for a very long time in Siemens since basically the 2000s or even 98. But when all, all the cloud 
activity started, get data to the cloud, create smaller IoT devices, and all of that. You get into also like more server systems, uh, fanless systems, and all of that. Um, so we we created a lot of new products and really try to get IPCs into more and more of the manufacturing applications and integrate them. Um, I came to the US now in 2019, uh, and here in the US, I'm responsible for for Siemens factory automation for um, basically the product management and marketing of all the PLCs and HMIs and, and IOs and but also for edge devices and, and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And how can you apply new technology to the market? How can new technology in actually help improve our customers' operation, can improve manufacturing, can create a more efficient machine, a better machine, more intelligent machine? How can we really use it so that technology is not just technology, but technology becomes useful and, and creates a value and a benefit uh, for our customers? So um, in a nutshell, that's basically me. Um, it's now four years and here to stay longer. We'll see where it goes in the future. I'm smiling because I think you have a, a great background to ultimately have a really good conversation because you've shifted from OT you know, earlier in your career and now you understand the IT side of things. You ultimately have seen maybe the shifts and the changes uh, that occurred in our industry over the years. So, you know, before we again, like dive into that a little bit deeper, I want to ask you a couple of questions earlier in your career. So number one, uh, I know that Siemens, for example, has a really good rotational programs when engineers begin. And so they have a chance, you know, to experience a lot of different areas. But I like the fact that you mentioned, you know, when you worked for a smaller company, you could kind of have that maybe like breadth, less of, I guess, depending on how you position yourself, more of a depth versus breadth. Uh, sort of skill set, what would you recommend for engineers starting out today? Do you think that our rotational program is best? Do you think joining a smaller, maybe systems integrator is good? What, do, what is your perspective maybe on getting into the automation industry? I think there, there are probably multiple ways. So a rotational program is, is, is definitely an option to do it, but, but also join a small company, yeah? But um, also at that time, I didn't get the same salary like I would have gotten at Siemens, but the, the experience I got out of it was or is invaluable uh, because with the speed you learn things, with the amount of different things you can do, you can try it if, if you want to, it's, it's really great. So joining a system integrator, joining a smaller company where you have ability and also the environment and, and your boss supports it, that you can really tackle different things and they, they, they trust you to do different things is definitely a good way to start. Hmm. And um, it, it helped me a lot. So I, I don't think even with an rotational program, I wouldn't have been able to make the same amount of experiences in, in a short time. Now. So for, for me, it was really a good path to get started. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. You know, our industry, I find, has so many different paths. And I would say, at least for myself, they were not all, of, how to say, like visible early on. And I think that we're slowly getting better at sort of showcasing them to younger engineers. But uh, it's certainly, again, just interesting to see the different perspectives, how like you got started and how you learn different skills. Uh, but maybe if, uh, if we want to continue on a similar path, could you paint us a picture, right, of a plant running uh, at that time? Was there a network connectivity problem? Was was each machine isolated? I just want maybe to, to have a better picture for the listeners as well as the viewers of what it was like at that time when you were just getting started versus 
what it is today. And I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, even I haven't, I've been in the industry for close to a decade now. So I'm, I'm curious how things were at that time and what were some of the challenges that may be different to today? I think it's it's really where two where two sides to it. So on the one side, uh, I was as a contractor, a system integrator, also working for Bosch, for example, and these were highly automated plans. So you had network, you had a lot of communication. The line control really meant we have like 20, 25 different machines in a line doing things, and every machine basically gives you data in a five-second interval, and you have to process it. You have to there were like hundreds of different components uh, running through the line and you had to make sure everything is going to the right place. So this is kind of very similar to, to what we have today, but but it took a huge amount of effort also to program everything. So as it was, was done with armors, we had like 40 tasks running on a small PC, which was part of a control um, of, of a PLC. Um, but, but it took weeks and months to do it. Uh? Um, so, so it's something you can do in a highly automated environment where you know that you manufacture thousands or millions of, of pieces and devices. Um, it makes sense. I also saw other customers um, where there was a lot of manual labor. There was not a lot of connectivity and maybe connectivity between multiple machines with just a couple of wires sending signals back and forth. But there was no data exchange. Um, still see today, but, but I think today we see more of a data exchange with Ethernet cables, Profinet, uh, other protocols, OPC UA. Um, but, but at that time, really, there were a lot of machines just um, in line and one machine passing to the next one with, without having any data connectivity or exchange. So, so like the Bosch example is more really on a high end for, but, but I think these guys really were in the millions even at that time for, for automotive parts. What about the protocols at that time? Were they as optimized as they are today? Again, because I've read about the transformation and how, you know, Ethernet and Profinet have become significantly better over the years. But was it as readily, I want to say, like used at larger plants or how, how did the protocols change ultimately? Now, I think it was a lot of, let's say, TCP IP communication and, and you had to define your standard yourself. Not necessarily a lot of tools would support it, but you create your data structures and you can import it into the different tools. So everyone had to take care and make sure that really the order of your bytes and order of information is all of the same thing. And that's why it took so long. Yeah? And it also takes so long to find an error if something doesn't work. Yeah, because there was a lot of potential on all kinds of sites, maybe maybe to do something wrong. And, and then you have to follow up yourself and have to make sure where, where, where you find out why isn't it working properly and, and all of that. Uh, so, so really TCP IP communication, um, not a lot of support for, for the automation engineer and, and standardization was really happening on paper and everyone had to make sure also to know about changes that happened to standards. So, so that's uh, always also a challenge. It's really interesting, you know, I find it fascinating that at some point there was almost this sort of like split where automation had a lot of its own proprietary protocols. And it seems that now we're almost to some degree coming back, right? And you've mentioned a couple of technologies uh, in your introduction, right? So the IPCs were made for the industrial setting, but ultimately it is a computer that can be running Linux, could be running Windows or any other OS. So we're sort of bringing back a lot of the IT technologies, which 
at least in my opinion, have evolved quite quickly compared to some of the other components maybe in the industrial setting and now are being brought in to, again, as you said, like leverage the data, right? So we're able yeah. to pull data much quicker. We're able to make decisions much quicker. I would also, I guess in my experience, say that it's become a little bit more accessible, right? So if you're, I want to say back in the day, if you're a very large manufacturer, then you certainly had everything automated. Everything was you know, put in place correctly. But if you're a medium size, maybe it was not the right uh, type of investment. That's why you would see a lot of machinery being sort of standalone. You know, it's running on different platforms. Nothing's really consolidated. But now it's, I want to say, a lot cheaper and a lot. it makes a lot more sense to do it uh, today. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts or comments on what the industry has transitioned to, but no, I, I think there was really a, there was really a big or there is a big transition over the last 15 years in many ways. So as I think we had IPCs 20 years ago too, but most of them had a fan inside. So just from a hardware point of view, and having a fan means after five years you have to replace the device, and then with all kinds of problems, somebody has to do it. Now nowadays we see a lot of fanless devices or, or really embedded devices, no rotating parts at all. And, and, and just the robustness of, of an embedded PC is, is let's get, from a hardware point of view, is getting close to a PLC. So it's much more robust, less maintenance is much better. Um, I also think in, in 2000, I wanted to program a machine also in SCL, ST. Comment from an end user, from a customer was, oh, you can do it, but every time I need an additional sensor, you come and you change it. I and mean, you just have to think about, okay, you tra have to travel to Germany to Czech Republic, takes a day, you change it, minor thing, and you have to travel back and you calculate that cost versus doing everything in ladder. And then I was like, okay, let's go, let's move to ladder, even for I didn't like that idea, that time either. So I think also here from a program languages, we, we see a shift now where, where even more people are familiar with high-level programming languages, are more open to it, and, and not just on a university level, but also, let's say, two-year colleges and so on, that more and more people really know high-level languages and can deal with it. And, and the third thing really was um, about updating a PC, updating the operating system and all of that. And, and that if you have hundreds of PC in your factory and somebody manually has to update all the operating systems, so has to make sure it's working. And it's still, if a new operating system, your stuff is still running and you can't stop your production line. So this was too much of a risk for many customers. And what we see now with Docker technology, with edge devices, with maybe some, some platform below where you can just run your Docker containers on it. On, on, on different PCs, different generations, and all of that, and then also do a central update and central management. So this, this gets much better and is much more sophisticated now than it was uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the advantages that gets a little bit less talked about, right? I, I think a lot of the manufacturers are starting to understand what it, what it takes, but also what's the advantage of getting the data out of a device but managing devices remotely is still, you know, mostly done for the purpose of I'm an engineer, I'm going to remote into a PLC, and then I can perform either a change or an update. But it's not necessarily from that IT perspective where you do need to maintain, you know, a certain level of a patch because there is a vulnerability issue, or maybe it's just a feature update, but you're able to see all of those devices and make those changes fairly easily. So I think that maybe 
piece is still not understood, at least in my experience, but a lot of by a lot of the manufacturers. Um, and, and this was also in 2015, we created a, a device called IoT 2000, and there are other devices out there from other vendors as well. And but what I saw was uh, that a lot of um, customers and companies, they, they bought like, let's say, a handful of these devices, and they gave it to maybe a student or a younger colleague, and hey, let's think about it and come up with something. And when we created a nice idea, and it worked also on one or two machines, and then we said, oh, now I want to roll it out to 200 production lines. In that moment, somebody from IT stepped in, so hey, by the way, what, what about security? What, what about vulnerabilities? How do you update it? Uh, and then when suddenly a whole set of different questions came that somebody had to deal with. And in 2015, we weren't really prepared for that. Nowadays, mm -hmm. we are with, with our edge devices. But that, that's definitely for, for scaling, for really rolling it out in, in mass and in, in a production environment, uh, that's a super important topic. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, what are your thoughts? wanted to bring you in in the conversation as well. Thank, thank you, Vlad. I, I think I think a couple of things. One, Burned, I, I appreciate you mentioning the IoT 2000 devices. I feel like I'm the only one on the show that has ever mentioned those, and I think they are absolute stars uh, of, of the Siemens portfolio, if only for exactly the reasons you said of how inexpensive they are. Uh, after like 2015, I've typically gone to like the IoT 2040s, which are slightly more expensive, but I think they're exceptionally well-equipped. And, and I have, in fact, run kind of a whole bunch of sensors into them for, for you know, small outbuildings and everything, everything like that. I think that that is a really cost effective uh, solution. So I absolutely love that. Uh, and I'm excited to go kind of continue to talk about the requirements. But you mentioned being kind of core to the creation of the S7-1500. And I feel like we would be negligent as, as hosts if we didn't ask ask you to take us through that process, right? And, and and I guess I'm interested because much of the tech, much of the newer technology that we see kind of the S7-1500 sits at the base, right? So I, I've worked in a number of plants. I worked with a number of, of OEMs that the S7-1500 is, is the core and probably will still be the core for the next, I don't know, 10, 20, maybe more years at, uh, at this point. So um, with that, can you like, can you take us through the process of the, the S7-1500? And I know you said it took five years, so I'm interested to know kind of the, the groups of people you talk to, and then like, how do you come up with the requirements of, of what it needs to be? Okay, so um, yeah, okay, sure. Um, so actually it, it took even a little bit longer than five years to work on that, as I think we're, Colleagues even started like in 2004, really to, to think about it. What could be the next generation of PLCs afterwards? Um, and then really see, okay, well, what are kind of the future requirements? And also well, what's really needed in the future? And what is also a future-proof platform to, to learn basically from what we had in an S7-300, 400 environment, to also create something in with in my, having in mind that, okay, maybe tomorrow it, it's running on a PLC, we also have a software controller running on our IPCs. We have a simulation environment. We, we, we want to run it on different platforms. And, and there is more to come also where we can run an S7500 PLC where a couple of things, uh, I guess, where that will be announced at, at Hannover also in Hannover Fair. Um, so we, we really wanted to create a platform or also from, from all the architecture and everything, but, but still a PLC for sure. Uh, but it's also future-proof, like I said, for the next 20, 30 years or whatever. And, and we, we can run it for whatever comes up. If, if 
you have to run it on, on a 1500, ED 200 CPU, software controller, different platform, you can do it without a lot of uh, development and, and, and re-engineering. So that was really building a, a component where was, uh, or like a common component where was an important aspect. Um, then we, we also looked at requirements and we have had um, tons of customer programs, anonymized customer programs, just to see what did customers use or what are we actually using in a 300 and 400. So what, what, what code is used, what is not used, uh, which maybe blocks were never used. Uh, and, and then also see from that side, what, what can we learn out of it? And, and then I think we had like hundreds, multiple hundreds of customer interviews and, and engagements really to learn about it, what we can do. And also for the hardware itself, to build a prototype, first time 3D printing, very sophisticated, very expensive at that time, not, not like today. And uh, going to customers, also going to panel builders and say, hey, here's a new IO module, take it, put it in, in your cabinet, and how, how's the wiring? What do we need to change? Is it easy to do? Yeah? Yeah, is, is there a better way to do so? So all kinds of things happened from a requirement side. And then, then of course, being in product management, it's also always working with R&D, with software engineers, and also on the hardware side with, with developers. And, and this was a team of yeah, multiple hundred, more than 500 guys being involved also with the tier portal doing all of that. And then see, okay, what are the requirements and, and what can we do and how can we do it in the best way? So from a technical side, but also that it meets the customer requirements. So it wasn't just me also on the requirement side, there was at least, I think, a team of 30 product managers involved in it, uh, not just for the 1500, but all, also drives, communication devices, everything else that's associated with it, where, where it all fits together. Um, and it was a super exciting time, but, but it was also pretty stressful time at the time, but, but still it, it's something like you do every 20 years. So it's something I wouldn't want to miss. And I'm really lucky that I got a chance to be part of it. It's really interesting, you know, and I know that no manufacturer does this, but being able to collect those statistics on the controller of what's used, because I think there's a lot of debates even in our industry about the different languages that are used in the field, right? If it's structured text, if it's SCL, if it's uh, ladder logic. But I think it'd be really interesting to see also statistics on, again, like what are they doing with the controllers, right? And, and very specifically, right? What kind of processes are they controlling? And I think maybe with uh, that connection to the cloud or those higher level services, we'll be able to like anonymize some of that information and be able to gather uh, better information. But I certainly... I like the fact of bringing in customers and understanding, you know, what challenges they're facing. And I'm, I guess I would be personally very curious to see how those interviews went, but it, it's really great to, to hear from you what the, what the, I want to say the experience of developing that next platform mm -hmm. looked like. Okay. Can I, uh, can I have a follow-up on that? Uh, mm -hmm. When you're, when you're talking to the customers, so I, I imagine you're talking to a bunch of people who are, who are using the S3 and 400 devices out in the field to understand what they want for the next level. But are you also talking to the executives at the corporation to understand what they think? Well, I guess, are those, are those the forward looking conversations you're having of saying, where do you guys imagine you're going to be in 10 years? How can we build a device to let you get there? 
Yeah, for, for sure. So we, we really talk to basically um, all levels uh, at, at customers, different customers, and at also small, smaller customers, small, medium sized customers, uh, large corporations. Large corporations usually also have like a, let's say, future future technology department where they see themselves kind of in like, like a CPG company or automotive company, what we want to do, where we want to be. Um, smaller companies, may, maybe not so much, but still there might be a lot of valuable feedback and, and maybe feedback we know, but we also know that maybe today in a 7300, by the time we weren't able to implement it, at least not in a good way. And we made sure that we can also bring these requirements into the new platform. And, uh, and then, then, of course, it's also about the business. How is the business going to change? And that's also where all of the industry 4.0 uh, thoughts came in, um, mm -hmm. concepts came in. So we want to have a flex um, production environment that's more flexible. Maybe not so much high volume, low mix anymore, but you want to have a high mix and, and, and um, you want to have a high mix and still the lowest cost. Mm -hmm. So how, how can you achieve that? Huh? What, what, what do you need to change in, in your production environment? And what, what do you need to have in a controller to make sure that also in the future it's going to be ready for that? Uh, and that's, for example, communication interfaces, open communication interfaces with, with OPC UA, for example, really to, to adapt to also what's happening left, left and right. Um, so, so we were really <clears throat> interviews at, at all levels to make sure that we ca capture the different aspects and then also like uh, thought leaders and then maybe industry leaders and other research institutes like Fraunhofer and others. So what they think about the future of manufacturing and what's going to happen. So to put it all together. And and what, one last kind of follow up to, to that is, so you spent a number of years talking to all of these people how close were they to, to where the industry is today? Did, did they have a pretty good idea of this is where we were going to end up? Or is there kind of th that gap in the idea where we were going to be and, and where we actually are is different? Now, I, I think uh, regarding where we want to end up, at least also in Siemens, we were always kind of futuristic and probably mm -hmm. further out in the future when, when, when the market and, and all of our customers actually were. Yeah. So we, we always run run risk that, that maybe we are even a little bit too far ahead of, of what, what, what's uh, also doable. And also in 2000, everyone thought it's going to be SCL and everyone is going to use PCs and nobody needs a PLC anymore. Mm -hmm. 20, 20 years later, we are still selling tons of PLCs and then everything is greater. Um, so I, I think it. I think from a concept, we, we captured quite a bit. Also, I think the first ideas of digital twins we, we had like in 2008, so sometime 2009, sometime around. Took another almost 10 years really, or eight years to get it out. But, but um, so I think there are a lot of ideas there, um, also at our customers. And then of course it takes step by step really to, to make sure to, to get them implemented. And then also make sure that at the customer side, also automation engineers, but also the operators and technicians, everyone is ready for it. So that also the people, everyone can follow along and not somebody just comes up with a crazy idea on how to do things and uh, nobody is ready for it. So that's also an important aspect and it also takes takes longer. Also like a development also takes longer than, than you think it would. 
Yeah, definitely. And and I think, you know, the people aspect is something I want to touch on. But before we dive into that, Brent, I want to ask you, you know, when you talk to your customers, the end users today, what are some of their, I want to say, not necessarily fears, but maybe still some of their pushbacks, you know, when they are being put in front of these newer technologies, when they're seeing something that will, again, go from, let's say, OT now is owned by IT, or there's a how to say it, a, a cross of data? Are, are they pushing back on the cybersecurity side? Are they push, pushing back on the data ownership? What kind of maybe conversations are you uh, having today on that side? So we, we are definitely, um, all, we, are, we are always talks about security updates, patches. Um, and what we also see quite often now is that we, we start to talk with automation engineers at, at, a, at a customer. And then, of course, sooner or later, suddenly, we also have IT colleagues of a customer joining. And then, of course, we have all kinds of additional questions about what's going on, what do you do? It's something I don't know, I'm not familiar with, and mm -hmm. how does it affect my plan, affect everything? So, so this is definitely a big topic. Um, say, uh, where's the data stored is also a, a big concern. So um, I think that also was at the beginning of cloud, everyone was very yeah, hyped up about the cloud concept, but also like just data, uh, who owns the data at the end of the day? So what was a big concern? And that's also that, that right now with Edge, we get a lot of questions. Can you run Edge without connecting to the cloud? Yes, you can. You can store everything on your servers. And it's much easier to continue the conversation yeah? um, because the data just stays within premises or within the company network and, and doesn't go anywhere outside. So, so this is definitely also a big concern also about that data security can I rely on that a cloud account doesn't get hacked and all of that. And I think all, all the cloud providers or the Siemens of Mindsphere did a lot really to, to work on it and ensure it. But I think that, that's still a, a big concern that's out there and needs a lot of explanation really to make sure. Um, it takes a lot of explanation to convince people that it's safe to put data in the cloud. And that's a very interesting comment. You know, I'll be honest with you. I've seen more, I want to say, insecure systems on the plant side than I have in the cloud, at least. I've seen less bridges on that side. But I, I hear the same comments as you with, uh, with the people that I work with. And... Uh, there is this hesitancy for some reason, right? I'm, I'm, I can only speculate, right? Because ultimately, they don't see the the physical server that's sitting in a room that is locked by a key, right? But I think cybersecurity goes a little bit deeper than that. So, th anyways, I, I don't want to go on this big tangent, but I think it's interesting to have these. I want to say. Uh, kind of strange thoughts around it uh, ot convergence. But maybe what's uh, what, what kind of like benefits do you articulate to them, right? So if I have, a, as an example, I have a medium-sized manufacturer right now. They're running everything on-prem, right? There's zero data being collected. The machines are connected. You know, maybe it's just signals for uh, upstream, downstream sort of machine up and running. What kind of benefits do you articulate to them when it comes to, hey, let's connect your machinery Either it could be like an on-prem solution, right? That is storing that information, but at least provides them with that visibility and maybe also involves IT and sort of creates this database that they can look at long-term. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? So, so I think the first, for, for an existing 
planned existing production really and then no data collected today. The first thing is really just to start with some, let's say, basic data collection and, and, um, and improve the overall equipment efficiency, OE. Try to find out where do you have bottlenecks. Um, if you have multiple lines, where is, is everything going to be holed up? Uh, what do you might need to change to, to improve the overall operations? So, so this is something, let's say, very easy. You could even do like with, with, with an HMI system and just connect on PC with an HMI if it's only one line. Yeah? If you have multiple lines, you might want to use edge devices to collect the data from different lines, different machines, and, and just really get an improve the production, uh, the efficiency of, of a machine itself, of a, of a line. So, so this is really the first, first start point. The, the second is to reduce the downtime. Uh, that could be also with all the data you can collect and, and also the errors you might collect, you might find out, okay, if certain things happen a day or two before the machine is actually going to fail and break down. Yeah? And we, we also have it in our own factories. If, if a machine breaks down at 3 a.m. in the morning where there's not a service technician can take good care of it, especially if it's a more complex machine and somebody from the outside needs to come in. So what happens? 8 a.m. in the morning or 6 a.m. somebody needs to call somewhere and then Hopefully, like four hours later or a couple hours later, somebody comes. So basically, the machine is not running for half a day or whatever. If you know it up front, you can avoid that. And then if you know two days up front that something's going to fail, you can just plan that somebody comes in, fixes it somewhere between eight to five. No, normal working hours um, takes maybe 15 minutes and the machine is running again and it'll never break down you just improve the availability of the machine. So this is definitely, these are the two areas, improve the throughput of a production line and then also improve the availability of a production line or a machine. So these are very easy areas to start. And then of course, with artificial intelligence and so on, there's much more to build on, but these are really like the key areas where you can start and then you can see or what else makes sense for, for your production environment. Let me ask you a, a follow-up question on that, right? So it, again, in my experience, I've seen once you want to collect any sort of data on the plant floor, you typically want to have at least a server on the IT side. And typically, as, as you've mentioned a little bit, there's this hesitancy and maybe initial fear of what that looks like, because I think they know very well their own realm and once that ot data is being passed you know through that uh main switch i want to say it becomes their ownership right like so they start owning the system and now they have to take care of it and again in my experience there's not a full understanding of what that looks like are you seeing a, a similar maybe pushback in those installations are you think those installations and rollouts are getting better how can you improve them you know by in my experience, it's starting those conversations with IT a little bit earlier. Like, what are your thoughts on, again, when you you want to deploy something fairly basic and sort of get over the hurdle of involving IT and making sure that they understand sort of the architecture, what they're responsible for, what that data looks like, what the devices look like, and ultimately how to maintain, you know, the hardware and software that resides on their side. Okay. So, like you mentioned, I think... Involving IT from the beginning is, is, is definitely a good approach. And even for it might take a couple of meetings at the beginning more to, to get them involved and up to speed with everything. 
it definitely helps in the long run just to make sure that everyone is, is aware of it and is on board from the beginning. Um, another approach might be, I mentioned we have industrial PCs, also rack PCs, which you can put in a panel and, and basically run also without AC and all of that. Maybe, maybe you, if it's not a ton, ton of data, maybe you install just ruggedized PCs directly on a production line. The data doesn't need to go to IT at the beginning. And then maybe that's also a starting point, really also to validate that concepts are working and, and just to get started quickly and, and get, get a response if, if all, all your debates actually make sense or, or maybe something needs to be changed anyway. So, so I think either for sure it makes sense to involve IT and that's also what I see it with companies. If there's, let's say, a better relationship or with, with IT and also better understanding from IT for the OT needs, Usually it goes smoother with an implementation uh, than not. Yeah? Um, the, the other way is really to keep it separate and just to keep the servers directly at the production line um, for, for the production data. So you don't have a switch, you don't have all the other stuff. It just stays on, on, on an OT shop floor. So, so that's, that's the other approach you can take. Yeah, I, I've seen those sorts of implementations as well, right? I guess it's a it's a company by company decision how they want to architect the solution, and a lot of times you save some time on the conversations if you keep it on the OT side, at least in my experience. Uh, yeah. But we have a good comment from Brian, and I want to follow that up with a question. So I'm going to read his comment. So he says, "ITOT lines are so blurry today. Hardware, software, networks, protocol, etc." are used everywhere. The roles for people supporting IT and OT also need to be well established. And so I want to expand on that a little bit, Brandon, kind of ask you, so do you see a world where more experts are familiar with both domains, right? So IT, OT sort of engineers, or do you see a very delineated line where, for example, you know, me with an OT background, I wouldn't, for example, be comfortable configuring switches and servers and DNS servers at this time. So should the lines be blurred or should it really be a delineation where, okay, Vlad, you are just the OT expert. Everything that happens upstream from this very specific switch, is going to be handled by IT. I'm curious, like if you see uh, organizations sort of shift their mindset when it comes to this. Uh, for, for sure. So I think the, the, the lines are very blurry today and they will get even more blurry in the future. And, and so from, from my point of view, my mind, also OT guys have to learn a lot more about IT and, and how to deal with all of that. Uh, it, I don't think it, it, it's a good choice always to rely on that just the IT guys know about it. And it's almost like you have an automation IT and maybe you have a company infrastructure IT. So and really an IT that's much closer to the automation itself. And that, that for sure, could be also or should be also the OT guys taking care of it, knowing more about network configuration, DNS, all the protocols, all the other things. So that's a ton more to learn and, and, and to deal with uh, for, for sure. But uh, it certainly helps it. And it also helps in the conversation with the IT guys if, if you know what you're talking about, they are talking about, and uh, also helps to explain it in, in, in better terms. Um, vice versa, if somebody from IT really claims to be responsible for OT and wants to do it, then he also needs to learn something about OT. Otherwise, he should stay like on the Office 365 uh, desktop uh, 
level and, and not deal with the with OT environment at all. No? So the lines will get more blurry, they're already blurry and it'll get even more blurry in the future, for sure. I'm curious, to be honest with you, again, I, I always say this because I don't really have an answer, you know, to that question myself. I certainly see it get, how to say it, more and more challenging, right? Like as an automation engineer, you start having to learn a lot of these concepts that, again, you could spend an entire career just learning how to configure switches and networks properly, right? So I think there's a lot just to that small segment, let's say, of IT. And so it becomes, how to say it, more and more difficult, I want to say, to maintain that level of knowledge because I think technology has also changed. There's new things coming in all the time, both on the OT side and the IT side. So I, I guess like I would certainly not trust myself configuring all those devices, but I just mm -hmm. know enough to be able to have a conversation about it, as you said. Uh, but, but I'm curious how the industry is, is going to change. And like I said, I don't have the answer. Maybe, no, no, maybe I, they... I, I, Go ahead. I agree. I, I, I agree. It, it's getting more and more to learn. But that's also our task as, as, as Siemens, as, as a vendor, to make sure that it gets easier to handle. But also, like, let's say an OT guy can deal with all of this new technology and then everything that's coming up. And that, for example, tier portal and other configuration tools, it, it, it's everything is presented in a way, and so, so that you know what to configure, how to configure, and, and uh, maybe you get some support configuring it, and you don't have to do deal with all yourself. And uh, maybe you get also some some hints on where things go wrong, things to check, and then things like that. So, so that's still an ongoing process. Um, but we, we really have to make sure that, let's say, all of this IT technology gets easy to handle, easy to understand, uh, and so, so that everyone, let's say, on the OT side can deal with it, uh, for, for sure. So it's learning more on the one side, but, but also having tools that make it easy to deal with it uh, is definitely the other side to it. Absolutely. Dave, what are your thoughts? I, I guess I have, I have a lot of thoughts, right? And, and I want to dig in a little bit more into kind of what we're seeing and then also maybe the assumed best practices of, of what we think those executive level decisions are going to be. In previous episodes, we had talked about how kind of best practices consist of, you know, the C-level or the executives to make a decision as to if IT and OT are going to work together or if one group owns, you know, segments of it. And then kind of once they leave the boardroom, uh, everyone needs to be that unified front. And if they're not a unified front, that that is when bad things happen and, and we run into to secret computers and, and OT uh, sub-networks. So I, I want to talk about that. But first, we actually have some people to thank. Uh, again, we want to thank Siemens uh, for sponsoring the ITOT Convergence theme. Decisions are made based on data. Data is the new gold of the 21st century, but most of the data within a factory is lost due to poor connectivity between the different levels of OT and IT. OT and IT are often two different worlds and not or incompletely connected with each other. And sometimes, honestly, that is that is for the best. But 
If you want to be ready for the future, the basis must be set today. Siemens totally integrated automation solutions for smart production can help drive you closer to your digital transformation goals while maintaining a robust industrial cybersecurity system. Learn more today by visiting Siemens.com slash digital hyphen enterprise. Again, that's Siemens.com slash digital hyphen enterprise. And again, we want to thank Siemens uh, for their continued support and uh, yeah, for, for their continued support and also helping to uh, helping you get burned uh one of the i'm just gonna i'm gonna call you a co-creator of the s7 1500 um on the show i give lots of titles to people and i feel completely within my right to uh to go give you uh to go give people lots of titles but uh but but absolutely uh so continuing on that i i guess i have said throughout my career i have certainly seen kind of ot and it buttheads i on a fairly regular basis work with kind of large corporations that OT is on the plant floor. I'm actually thinking back and I I cannot for the life of me remember a single IT person that I've ever physically interacted with beyond how do I go get on the network? And sometimes it's a, you have to go send your, your sponsor or your champion the request and you get somewhere between 12 and 23 and a half hours of, of Wi-Fi. And then you have to go through the process of reconnecting uh, every day, every time you need it, right? So, so I've, I've seen that. And then just a couple of weeks ago, uh, or I get not, not a couple of weeks ago, earlier this year, um, I, I was at with a client, right? They, they were having trouble uh, lying down sort of issues. And, you know, I was out there working with the client shoulder to shoulder with, well, most of the literal IT department and our conversations basically amount to, the, to them saying, hey, we don't particularly understand what is happening from like the IT technologies or from the OT technology side. But if you can tell us things that we can look for, we can go shoot, troubleshoot the IT side. And I'm like, that's good because I physically do not possess the, the IT or OT networking skills in order to do that. So I think that the, those are kind of the, the, the two extremes that many people see. And in my career, I find most of my biggest successes are with kind of that latter group, right? The the IT group who might not be OT experts and honestly aren't OT experts, but are willing to go work together as a team as to if it has been commanded by the plant manager and it's been commanded by executives or that is just the the relationship they have. And, And I understand for many, especially controls engineers, folks listening, Vlad's terrible previous life experiences uh, working for some some large companies. That is not necessarily the that that is not necessarily how how everything works in our world. Uh, Burned, I guess from your side, on, on the kind of director executive level conversations, are they having conversations of hey, we need to put together working groups or, or, Hey, we need to do a better job, uh, at least opening channels of communication. For, for sure. So I think also over the last, let's say three to four years, a lot of companies started digitalization projects overall. And then also what we saw that quite often the, these projects are not successful or not as planned successful. Maybe the POC is still working. Mm-hmm. But but the rollout overall doesn't work as expected. And I think a, a lot of executives also see that you, you need a overall holistic strategy how, how you want to approach a topic and you need an organization or you need to have cross-functional teams being responsible for it and then creating really it from a, from a top down 
and also defining the goals you want to reach with his teams, really to make sure that everyone is working together, is aware of it. Um, to avoid creating a POC somewhere hidden in, in, in a corner, yeah? and, and then the, the moment you want to go out, uh, you, you really clash and there's a lot of disappointment maybe because you're not allowed to roll out your, your, your solution, and at the same time the other guy kind of is just afraid of what's going to happen, has to protect his own turf and then all of that, and then so there's a lot of uh, fighting happening. Um, I think a lot of people realize that nowadays, that you need an approach where you really have to define cross-functional for the whole company, how, how, how you want to address these topics. And I think still not everyone in a company has to be involved from, from the beginning. You can still create a, like a smaller team and a POC, but you need all functions involved. So that, that all the different aspects that are relevant for it addressed from the beginning and, and taken care of from the beginning and, and nobody feels left out and, and then it, it comes really to, to, to the first scenario you described that there was a lot of fighting going on. So, so, so that's something that's happening more and more. Um, I guess also um, larger companies have to do more really to manage that. In, in, in a smaller company, you have probably you have good relations with, with your colleagues anyway. And uh, IT is also much closer to the shop floor. That's also what I saw in, in many smaller companies, but where also the IT guy spends quite a lot of time, quite some time on the shop floor anyway, and understands about production. Then, of course, things get easier to talk with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, I think that those are those are great uh, comments. Uh, as you were saying that Lewis actually posted uh, when he was at uh, S4, X23. Last week, he witnessed a lot of conversations uh, with industry professionals and many IT folks are asked to support and secure the OT devices, and yet they don't know what a PLC looks like, right? Yeah. Uh, any IT folks who don't know what a PLC look like, uh, Vlad, do the Vanna White behind you so uh, so everyone can, can see a good, uh, a good smattering of them. Thank you, Vlad. Uh, and so Lewis says that his advice is for them to go to the factory floor and to talk to the, the guys that support the devices and learn from them uh, how the devices work and what the capabilities are and understand the process. And I think if they want to understand the process, that is fantastic. But I would also say sometimes it's best to, to know your limits and know the right people to ask how to move on uh, from that. I, I've met very few IT people who didn't hope to transition into OT that were willing to go learn ladder logic, right? A number of times every year we joke on this show about ladder logic and burned. I think you made a, made a good comment earlier, right? It's not the most intuitive of programming languages, especially if you have programmed, I don't know, anything uh, from object, object oriented or from C or, or C plus or C sharper or any of those kind of languages. It's not the most intuitive thing. You almost have to to rewire your brain if if that's what you want to want to do. And so I don't see a lot of IT people going and learning another uh, potentially completely useless for the rest of their life language. But I, I think it's a good opportunity for them to to go build those relationships because if you've built those relationships, then at least you've got that working ability and that working capability when the, the conversations come up. Um, we we actually also had. Um, Another question that, that I think ties into this really well. Uh, the question is, uh, so uh, question basically, Matt says, so who manages who manage 
the, the, per, the people managing edge devices can be a challenge, right? So IT service providers can offer support like upgrades and security patches. And then the OT managed devices can be hard to support for all of the reasons that most of us here know. Uh, Bern, what are you seeing as, as best practices today, either from your perspective or the Siemens perspective or what you're seeing rolled out? So I think first, um... With edge devices, we, we created it. It's really with a platform and environment that, that really an OT guy, automation engineers can manage the devices. So that it's simple enough um, and then easy enough from, from 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 a user interface and everything that you can do mass updates. You can uh, roll out patches. You can update versions of certain apps and programs, and then and really manage it all in in a very easy and central way um, without a ton of knowledge about maybe more complex IT systems. So, so this was also one of the goals with our edge devices to do that. And uh, and, and of course, tying that also into our, our PLCs, when you would be also able to deploy through the edge devices, there are also options to deploy updates to the PLCs, to the HMIs, drives, and so on, to, to further programs, really to have like central management and, and to update it. So this is really the goal to keep it on a shop floor, keep it in an automation environment and then give, give the automation engineer really the chance to deal with all of it. So that not everything has to go to IT. So, so maybe certificate handling, encryption, couple other things at the beginning, IT might be involved to, to get everything set up within your company. But afterwards for the actual operations updates, what apps do you run on an edge device? What do you do? With it, that's something that should be handled by the OT guys, and then that, that was is our goal, and um, was also our goal when we created the Edge platform at the beginning, really to make it easy for everyone to deal with it and then deal with all, all of the scenarios. I like that answer, and you know, as a follow-up, Bernd, I also want to tie in uh, the earlier comment, you know, about people and sort of culture, and and I think that term sometimes gets used a little bit. Uh, loosely, right? But ultimately, I'm curious what your perspective is on, you know, the current state of sort of automation and new technologies that we're rolling out to plant operators, right? To maybe supervisors in the operation side. And what is there? Um, I want to say like the perception and because I think as the OT and IT groups, we've become sort of educators as well. And we try and give them the right tools to make decisions as we've discussed, you know, to improve the performance of the machinery, to improve OE and ultimately put more product out the door in a safe and more reliable manner. But what is, you know, the, is the industry ready for all the tools? Are we doing the right job in educating the people on how to utilize those tools? Are there challenges for the OTIT groups that are maybe now coming up that we didn't know about, right? Like, do we need to have, someone who's going to be this champion who's really going to sit down with operations and train them on it because again in my experience i've seen a lot of initiatives fail because i think the expectations are set very high and i think that we can certainly get there but we don't how to say like we don't have enough time to change the culture right like i think that is a is a pretty big barrier and me and dave had a conversation with an engineering manager who asked us, you know, point blank, we're getting all this information, we're getting the data, I'm able to see it in my systems, but it's taking a lot of, how to say it, a lot of effort to ingrain 
that in the culture. So I'm curious, you know, what your perspective is on that side. It's definitely a very important topic um, to, to take care of it. Also consider from the beginning, what's the people working on the plant floor, all the operations managers, everyone else. Um, and that's also for in, in our own factories, also like, like in our factory in Hamburg, um, I, 1990, we had around 1,200 people. It, it's still 1,200 uh, people in, in, in a factory. But what we are doing changed quite a bit from 1990 to today. Mm -hmm. and also, the output increased by 17, 18 times. So we, we get efficiency really increased over the years, yeah, 17 times roughly. Yeah. Um, um, so, so what we are doing is different. We have way more IPCs in there, edge devices, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And that's also a constant dialogue with uh, colleagues working on a shop floor to make sure that they understand their job is not going to go away. Where the job is going to change or what we do, how we do it. And all this technology is supposed to help them and support them uh, that they can focus more on important things and improving production, getting more out of the door finding new ideas, maybe how, how to improve production even further, and then reduce basically the base load and, and the base work and so that we can focus more on important things that really matter. Um, but, but that's something you have to do right from the beginning, include everyone, make sure that everyone understands what's happening and that that's not really a threat, but also an opportunity to help to create a better, more efficient production and then also be more successful overall. Um, yeah. And there is a saying, uh, uh, culture is strategy for breakfast. And uh, that's exactly what it is. Huh? If, if you, you don't take care of the culture, if you don't involve everyone, then uh, it's not going to work. It's, it's definitely not going to work. Yeah, and it's, it's a very challenging problem, right? And we were, me and Dave in that conversation, we were put a little bit on the spot, but I, I, I think it's not a one-size-fits-all answer, right? Like, it's going to depend on the company. It's going to depend, again, we talked about, like, a very basic architecture that they can roll out today. And then, obviously, I think there's a lot of ambition in the industry. So you need to almost, at least in my experience, kind of pace yourself through those steps. And you cannot simply go from you know, completely not connected, completely, you know, air-gapped, and then we're going to go to AI, ML, be able to simulate everything from scratch. I, th I think I've seen a lot of those sort of ambitions fail very quickly. Uh, so you need to not skip steps. I, I think, like, that's my blank statement, but ultimately you need to really understand uh, the culture, I, the, the industry. It's different. Again, if you go into pharmaceuticals, in my experience, very different than and beverage for example so yeah. it's uh it's also very interesting i fully agree and that for sure it, it makes much more sense really to do it in small steps also define smaller results and, and build step by step instead of having really a big grand vision what you want to achieve and when it's for whatever reason not going to work out maybe you missed some things uh things turn out a bit different at the end of the day so so and then really from complete independent machines, air gap, nothing at all. There are many ways how you can optimize and improve before you come to AI, ML, cloud-based systems, edge systems, on uh, AI systems on edge, and then all the other things. So there were many steps in between, but, but already provide value and already help you to improve your production. 
So that's uh, definitely the much better way to go before you come up with a great plan and then somewhere along the way it, it's uh, going to fail and, and not bringing the value you, you're looking for. Yeah, I think it. I think the intention comes from like a positive side, right? Like they're they're seeing a lot of opportunity. So obviously, everybody wants to be ambitious. Everyone's excited about uh, what can be done, and so it's not necessarily that they don't understand the value. It's more, uh, you know, biting off more than you can chew. At least uh, from what I've seen. Exactly. So and it's always good to have like like a north star and to have an aspiration and where you want to get to and what what you want to achieve for sure and. Yes, you could implement Industry 4.0 where all the machines are independent. You have HGVs, AMRs, uh, all, almost like a dark factory, everything set up. Mm-hmm. But you also need the people to support it. Huh? And if you, are, if, if you start from not having any tech connection IT at all on, on your shop floor, then that might be, that step is just too big, that bridge to cross. Huh? But for sure, it makes sense to have that aspiration and to have that goal where you want to be in a couple of years and what you want to achieve at the end of the day and where you see yourself. Absolutely. Dave, what are your thoughts? I I, I think there are a lot of good points. I, I think uh, kind of to the culture point, as, as we've all talked about, right, there, there's no easy solution, right? Like there we, we can go create a, a technology roadmap. And if, it, if we want to upgrade a single machine, we can go write a scope of workout to, to upgrade a single machine. If we want to build an entire factory or build the, the, the next S7 line, the F7 1800 or, or 2000, right? Well, like we could in theory go write the, those hard specifications of what we want to do. Culture, culture is something different, right? If we could easily solve the culture problem, by writing out a, a list of requirements and going to do the things, it would have been done, right? Like we, we would not be we would not be talking about it. Culture is hard because, to some not large extent, it was ignored, right? People continued to show up for 20, 30, 50 years, and they did the same job every day. And if they had a question, they knew the right person to ask. And now almost all of those folks are gone, and we are back to the we've got to solve kind of as I've got a client who loves to say the, the basic blocking and tackling, right? Like we have to okay. go back to, to the basics and try to capture those and then try to build together a group who is willing to go work five or 10 years. And, and hopefully when they are moving on to the next places at significantly faster rates than historically it has happened in, in factory uh, in, in factories that we have captured enough knowledge and have built enough programs and have people who can implement those programs to be able to train the next group who will hopefully go spend five or or 10 years working on that. And I think that is what the the future of of our industry is going to look like. And if people aren't capturing that knowledge, then honestly, it doesn't matter how well ITOT has converged because there there will be no OT or IT there to argue about the the correct path forward uh, with the pieces of technology. Uh, fully agree. So, and even especially since technology and everything comes becomes more complex, it even gets more important to, to capture all that knowledge and, and to preserve all the knowledge. Uh, if, if all of your machines are kind of independent, it might be even easier when in the future if everything is interconnected, way more complex. And if you cannot preserve the knowledge with a new system, so then, then you are really in trouble later on. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Talking about the future, I think that that is a good segue. Uh, Bern, we we prepared you that that we're going to go ask you to to predict the future. And and I think that you have uh, a tremendous background on all of these amazing pieces of technology and all of this firsthand experience. Uh, Where do you think that the industry is going to go? Where do you think ITOT convergence is going to go in the next five to 10 years? So, so, so first, with ITOT, I think we will see much more IT technology, PCs, um, maybe not as a, maybe it doesn't look all the time like a PC, maybe an embedded device. We will see more PCs on a shop floor. We will see more IT technology, uh, Linux, Docker container on a shop floor in a way that it's fully usable. Having Docker container, all of these technologies will allow also to bring all kinds of new applications that maybe exist today on more in the IT space, that you can bring it down on, on our edge devices. You also have an AI inference server. You can run your own neural, deep neural networks on it, execute whatever you may, may have developed before. You, you can run it. So we will see more of these new technologies coming into machines supporting predictive maintenance optimization as one part also with ai and machine learning flexibility is another aspect um, we have a cool application also for flexible grasping where you don't need to program a robot as a camera and the robot just identifies the object whatever object it is and can pick it so we will also see machines that are so smart in their way that they can deal with all different product variants, even for they were never trained on it. Um, and they can deal with different situations and, and, and they, they just know based based on the training, the neural networks, or what to do with it and how to deal with it. So, so we will also see much higher degree of flexibility, distributed machines. So when maybe something changes in your production, you just bring in one additional machine, the rest stays the same. And when you have HEVs or AMRs, transporting basically the goods from A to B to C. Um, I believe there will be always, also in 10 years, we will have people in the factory taking care, optimizing it. Mm-hmm. Their jobs will change again. So it won't be the same like like, like today. And then maybe also the knowledge we need to know, maybe also right now with A3 and the tech board, it's also a lot about training for AI, ML, with two-year colleges. But what do you do there? With, uh, so not just a data scientist, who else would need to know kind of the basics of artificial intelligence and machine learning and how to deal with it and what it means. Huh? So their roles will even change further, not just high-level programming languages, also really the, the whole AI part. Um, uh, but we will still have people on the shop floor, but again, for, for different roles, different tasks than what you see today. And as always, some companies are going to be faster than others. Not, not everyone is going to move at the same pace like before. Absolutely. I, I and I feel like I can say, I think that companies that are the extreme laggards at adopting some of these technologies will either not be companies or they will get up, bought up by, by other uh, organizations who have solved some of the technology, some of the culture, some of the other issues. Um, yeah, I, I think that we will see a lot of that in the next five to five to 10 years. Um, and I think it will significantly change 
kind of uh, the it, it will change the entire playing field uh, of what we are seeing and who is making what uh, as, as we move forward. Uh, fantastic. Thank you. Um, ne- next question for you, Burned, is, is we'd love some career advice, right? So you have had. I mean, by the, by the time you got up to the S7-1500, which was like 10 plus years ago in your career, you have you had had an amazing career, right? And, and mm-hmm. the things that you've got to do after that um, have been, you know, bucket list items uh, for, for anyone, uh, most people listening. Uh, what is your best career advice? Is, is, the, is the career advice to, to go work for a smaller organization, uh, get a bunch of different opportunities, and then go figure out where, where your passion lies? Uh, um, or, or what is what is your kind of best career recommendation uh, for people? That's uh, um, I, I think to to have a solid basis, really to know what, what what's going on, helps so much, uh, and uh, it helped me also with working on a seven fifteen hundred because mm-hmm. being I was in R and D, really doing development for, for for modules, software development. But I was also on the automation side, so I knew both worlds. And when you have to make decisions and, and you know both worlds, you, it's, it's much easier really to understand what's going on. So to have a broad basis, a solid foundation helped me a lot. And then that, that's also one of the advices I would give. Um, the, the second is, I mean, do also the beginning. It, it's, it makes sense to think about, okay, where do you want to go? Well, what is your path? but also do where you see a passion, what you are interested in. Uh, at the beginning, I wanted to do just R&D programming. I didn't want to do anything with pro, uh, product management, business uh, uh, calculations, profitability, all the other stuff, wasn't interested at all in it. So, so I really wanted to go out and uh, do coding. That was what I wanted to do. And somehow coding and development went into automation Suddenly, I realized, oh, maybe a little bit profitability and business isn't so bad. And then when you move on, yeah. But um, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to start really what you're interested in, where your passion lies, what you really want to do, because when you're also going to be really successful with it. Yeah? Um, so there might be all kinds of career plans out of it, out there, but it really makes sense to start where you want to do it. Also, at the beginning. And I started to work. I didn't want to work for a big corporation. I wanted to work for a small company because I thought, oh, and I knew Siemens before actually at that time, but I, I'm not going to go where it's all too inflexible, bureaucratic, and so on and so forth. And look out nine years later, I ended up at Siemens. Yeah? So, um, and I ah! realized, hey, maybe it's a great place to go to. Yeah? Um, so, so sometimes it takes time, but, but, but I think it, it really makes a lot of sense to do what, what, what you really like, uh, what you're interested in. When you're also really willing to put a lot of time and effort and interest in it, and then when you're going to be successful, and then that will pay off over the long run with everything that comes afterwards. Bern, I'm curious uh, if I can ask you to uh, one question on that uh, that point, right? And I, I get this quite often because I talk to a lot of automation engineers as well. And the question is, you know, how to make that leap from engineer to manager and i think one of the key components you've mentioned is maybe the business knowledge and i know there's certainly you know ways to go back to let's say university and do all sorts of different degrees to round up your maybe technical experience but in your perspective you 
you were able to do that at the company, right? So they were able to sort of bring you up to speed and teach you like how accessible is that or how realistic is it for an engineer to go up to their manager and, hey, I would like to learn the financial side and maybe if you have some uh, advice on how to make that leap. It, it, it really, so, so I was also lucky in a small company I was at, um, but I, there was a lot of trust in me um, and um, a lot of freedom in what I want to do. Um, also at the university, micromechanical engineering, we, we had business classes. And then, okay, business is also, it's math on a one. It's not really that difficult if you kind of know the, the basics. But we had some business classes and I, I was I was a basketball coach for quite a while. I, I was dealing with the teams, leaving basically spare time, leisure sports teams. Uh, I was doing things like that. So it also helped even in a small company to be kind of a team lead, be a project lead and, and also start step by step in small steps to get into it um, and then also see what it feels like. And, and then I, I had a chance to do additional courses about product management in, even in a small company before I joined Siemens, really learn more about it. I think nowadays there are even more courses out there, um, Udemy, Coursera, all kinds of other platforms, online platforms, and even like, like online degrees where, where you can build up additional knowledge and all of that happened in my spare time. So it didn't happen from eight to five or eight to seven. It, it, it happened somewhere on the weekends and evenings and so on, really to, to get the additional knowledge. Um, but I also had a lot of support. Um, so so even, I, I think today there are a ton of possibilities. Um, again, if you want to do it, um, uh, there, there are options and maybe there are also ways in your companies how you can start in small steps to do that. So it's not an all in and when you realize uh, that that's not what I want to do and that, that's, I don't like it at all. So that you really can start um, with small steps to get familiar with it, to get first experience and then also see is it really what I want to do. And I also had colleagues first want to become in a, in a small company, want to become a team lead and then realize uh, that's not what I want to do. I want to be a technical expert. Huh? So when there's still a way also to go back and then be a technical expert and be good at that and I'm not going to management. Uh, so I think also for me for quite a while, it wasn't quite clear if I really want to go into management because I like the technical side and I still like the technical side today, but it, it evolved over time. Yeah? There was no step that wasn't like a step change. So now I'm a manager and, and I know it all. So, so it really happened gradually that, that I, I evolved into it and it became more more responsibilities for it. Makes sense. Thank you for that. A absolutely. I think that that is fantastic. Uh, I, I will also say that, that I started working for a couple of relatively smaller companies and I know some people really excel in larger companies in some of the co-ops as, as we've talked about. I don't think that that, that I would have. I uh, to, to Burns' earlier point, right? I, I did a lot of work. I did a lot of work that was not within what I thought I was going to be hired on. I, I was paid really badly, but I got the opportunity to, to figure out some things that I liked and to figure out some things that I, that I didn't like. And I probably did that 10 or 15 years sooner uh, than some other people. Um, and 
those are the positives I remind myself when, when I think back upon those days and uh, th th they weren't all positive, right? Th there were certainly negatives in there is in there as well. But, but I think that that is all part of the, the learning process. Uh, right. Fantastic. Uh, Burn. So we'd love a, a book recommendation. Um, no book recommendation or two, please. All right. Um, so the one of my favorite authors for, for quite a while now is, is Neil Stephenson. Um, first book I, wrote, uh, I read um, was, I think, Cryptonomicon. Mm -hmm. um, also see, okay, with all the crypto stuff uh, that happens nowadays and then how it evolves, all the snow crash with the metaverse or Diamond Age. So, so recently I, I, I read Fall or Dodge in Hell. Um, and one, one part is, is I, what, what I like about him is at first with these new ideas about technology, how it, but also how it affects people, how it's going to change the way we interact and, and um, how society might, might happen to be. Uh, um, I think all in fall and, or dodge and hell uh, was about there's all kinds of information on the internet and everyone decides on its own truth. But, but there's no agreed on truth anymore and kind of you have your editor and censor who picks out the information for you and depending on if, if you're whatever, if you're whatever you want to know and, and uh, you, you get different information and, and you don't look at where all, the, all the rest anymore. So um, it, they are super exciting books on the one side, but, but also about new technology and, and they have a lot of aspects in there, also snow crash with the metaverse and people just living there and interacting. But that became true sooner or later. Um, so it doesn't matter which big book you pick, um, Fall or Dodge in Hell is, is definitely interesting about afterlife, everyone, your brain gets scanned, um, you're living in an artificial en environment and everyone thinks we are going to be happy but we're not. So that's, uh, that's uh, really interesting and intriguing concepts. And uh, I like these books a lot. Fantastic. No, I think th those are very interesting book recommendations. We absolutely uh, appreciate uh, We absolutely appreciate that. Uh, anyone watching or listening, we will have those book recommendations uh, in the, the live streams and or in the, the show notes. Um, and then last question for you, Bern, is, is who should reach out? Uh, generally, how can anyone still listening uh, who appreciates everything you're saying uh, help you? Are you guys looking to hire? Uh, what sort of groups are you, are you looking to, uh, to talk to? Kind of very open-ended. Yeah, for, for, for sure. Every, everyone who wants to know more, please reach out to me. Um, can connect. Um, I'm looking forward to your, to your comments, questions. Um, we always hope to hire more people. Uh, we will definitely post it also on LinkedIn. So maybe just from that side, also connect with me um, if, if you might be interested in. Um, I, when we hire, always depends a little bit on waves, economical situation, and all kinds of other things like everywhere else. But uh, yeah, for sure, if, if you want to learn more, reach out. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about our edge devices, um, usa.siemens.com just as an entry point get started uh, this is also a good option and uh, then i'm, I'm here looking forward to hearing from you getting your feedback and, and connecting with you 
Absolutely. Th thank you, Bernd. Uh, again, if you guys would like to, to look, we'll have all of the, the LinkedIn and other profiles either on the live streams and or in the show notes if you guys are listening in podcast form. And again, uh, Bernd, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for, for coming and chatting about ITOT convergence. Uh, I, I feel like e each conversation re really built on itself, uh, probably uh, potentially unintentionally from our guests. But uh, but but that that is the magic of being able to uh, to have the these sort of conversations. Uh, so again, thank you everyone for listening. I will say if you've made it this far, uh, please give us a thumbs up. Please go ahead and like and follow uh, the shows if you're listening in podcast form and you can rate us five stars on Spotify and Audible and Stitcher and everything else. That, that absolutely helps for, for a bunch of reasons. If you're following on LinkedIn, please follow uh, Please follow along, subscribe, uh, follow Burn, Vlad, and myself. And if you guys want to check out everything else, manufacturinghub.live is the place to, to go make sure that you stay as up to date on everything as possible. Uh, again, thank you everyone for, for being here. And until next week, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone.